Welcome to The Hidden Jin, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. You're here because you believe in more than the eye can see. What you believe in may be different than what someone else believes in. Some of you might believe in ghosts. Others may believe in angels. And yet others believe in fairies and trolls and leprechauns. But I'm pretty sure all of you believe in something supernatural, intangible, something that exists in the shadows of our everyday human experience. And just like you, Billions of others throughout history and throughout the world have believed with religious fervor in a supernatural being you may never have heard of. But caricatures of that creature have still managed to crack through our pop culture, and chances are that at some point in your childhood you rubbed a lamp and made a wish, hoping that the blue genie from the film Aladdin would pop out and grant your wildest desires. You know, The funny, wisecracking genie dressed in a confusing mix of Middle Eastern and South Asian clothing, singing and tap dancing. A pretty endearing creature all around, to children and adults alike. But what you may not know is that there is nothing childish about genies, and that the silly, grinning, innocuous apparition from the Disney adaptations couldn't be further from the truth when it comes to the centuries of tradition, folklore, and fervent belief in an entire race of powerful and often terrifying beings, the jinn. That's right, our happy blue friend from Aladdin is a jinn, a jinn from the Arabian tale 1001 Nights. And the jinn are nothing to laugh about. I'm Rabia Chaudhry, and I'll be your guide into the ancient world of the hidden jinn. Welcome. And the jinn we created aforetime from the smokeless fire of a scorching wind. These words may sound like they come from a modern paranormal young adult novel, but they're actually almost 1,500 years old, and they come from the Muslim scripture, chapter 15, verse 27 of the Quran. We create aforetime from the smokeless fire of a scorching wind. The we here is God himself explaining the differences of his creation to believers. Mere mortals, says God, he created out of a muddy clay, and angels he fashioned out of pure light. And then there's this third category of creation, the jinn. God created them fearsome from the smokeless flame of a scorching wind, the very edge of the flame indeed, the most essential, purest part of it. Given the description, if you think about it, the jinn are composed of kind of the opposite elements of us humans. We're mostly water and carbon material like the earth itself, while jinn are created from the air elements of fire and wind. Like the earth, human beings are tangible, material, fixed, and limited in our physical manifestations. But jinn, like living gusts of fiery wind, they are ineffable, powerful, and uncontained. Now, scholars say that this description of jinn indicates a brilliant flame of the highest intensity, mixed with a smoldering wind. But it also signifies that maybe the jinn are made from the howling flames of hell itself, 
Their very composition smolders and burns, and yet it gives off no smoke. Now, this may seem counterintuitive and contrary to everything we think we know about fires, but believe it or not, smokeless flames are completely ordinary. In fact, you can find dozens of video tutorials online on how to create your very own smokeless fire, but good luck turning those into gin. Not everyone thinks the smokeless flame description is literal, though. Like many things in all scriptures, there are turns of phrases, figurative passages meant to present the contours of an idea and language understandable for the time period. Think about it this way. Human beings aren't actually made of clay, but we are made of organic compounds, earthly elements, tangible materials, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, and science even tells us that we are made of stardust, so you get the drift. Likewise, say some scholars, maybe the term smokeless flame of a scorching wind actually signifies energy. That maybe the jinn are pure energy, and they exist across dimensions that we don't even know exist. They're able to transform, transport, untethered by the laws of physics that bind humans, flitting back and forth through planes of time and space unseen to our eyes. Which is why they're called jinn, a word that means hidden, unable to be detected by human senses, concealed from all of us. But even though we can't see them, just like energy, they're everywhere around us. Maybe they're made of a combination of the many different kinds of energies we know exist. Or maybe they're elements involved energy sources we haven't even yet discovered. And maybe we never will. Maybe they're like the energy life force that many religions, faith traditions, and even indigenous cultures believe is contained within our very own bodies. You know, those things we call souls. Now, if you're a believer, it doesn't really matter what the jinn are made of, you just know they're out there. And here, right here, right next to me. And next to you. We can't see them, but they can see you. And if you're not a believer, then maybe by the time this series is over, you will be. Look, if I'm going to be honest, no three Muslims can get together without swapping jinn stories. It's our parallel tradition to time-honored campfire ghost stories. We just can't help ourselves because, well, we all have jinn stories to tell. But make no mistake, jinn stories didn't start in the 7th century in the desert of Arabia with the advent of the Muslim religion, even though they're mentioned 40 times in the scripture, the Quran. The jinn are much more ancient than that, predating the Quranic scripture by centuries, and their tales stretch across continents and millennia. After all, God did say that he created them aforetime. So when did it all begin? There isn't exactly one answer to that question that we can be sure is correct, and that's likely because dozens of different traditions and folklore merged over time and regions, intermingling and crisscrossing like a spider's web to create an entire universe of tales. There are echoes of the Arabian jinn stories, familiar strains, in the spirit myths from primitive Assyria and Babylonia. Jinn deities were all the rage in Palmyra in ancient Syria, and historians believe these demigods were called jinn, which in fact means invisible in Aramaic. But not all these ancient creatures were worshipped as gods. The Babylonians themselves were steeped in magical practices and demon lore with a vast array of demonic entities that parallel jinn descriptions, like the Atuku, a malevolent spirit that dwelled in deserts and graveyards, abandoned desolate spaces, lying in wait for unsuspecting humans passing by. 
There's also the Rabisu, which hide in barren spots and spring out to attack those that cross its path. Both of these creatures sound like and operate exactly like a kind of jinn called the ghoul. You'll also find in the corpus of Jewish demonology, and yes, that's a thing, mentions of evil spirits that sound an awful lot like the jinns that we encounter in Arabian lore. An ancient Aramaic translation of the Book of Job from the Hebrew Bible even suggests the Queen of Sheba was a jinn, birthed from the union of a human and a demon. There are dozens and dozens of rabbit holes you can fall into as you try to trace the origins of jinn lore. But for now, we'll stay out of them, and we'll focus on the vast body of tales that arose over centuries from late antiquity onwards from the sands of the Middle East. If you're thinking jinn are basically ghosts, at least as ghosts are understood in the Western imagination, well, you're not even close. In fact, the jinn are much more like human beings than haunting, shadowy spirits. The jinn are born, they eat and drink, they work and conduct business, they fall in love, they marry and have children, and yes, that means they are sexually active. They live in communities and they have hierarchies, nations and kingdoms. They may profess a religion, they are good, and they are evil, and just as they live, they die. Not for thousands of years, but eventually they do die. And they have what we would consider superpowers, including the power of shape-shifting, super strength, traveling through the cosmos and different dimensions, and all the many kinds of things human beings often wished we were capable of. While there isn't much in scriptural sources that describes the original creation of the jinn, there are many origin stories found in medieval writings, ancient folklore, and that differ from place to place. According to one legend, the very first jinn that God created out of the blazing desert wind well before the creation of mankind was a jinn named Asum bin Jan Tarnushi. His progeny inherited the earth, ruling over it for thousands of years and giving rise to 72 jinn kings. The last of these kings was named Jun ibn Jun, from where the name for the entire species of jinn comes from. It would be tens of thousands of years later that human beings came into existence and took over what the jinns once ruled. Another origin stories ties the origin of the jinn very closely to that of man. According to this legend, Eve, the wife of Adam, gave birth to 40 children at the same time, but can only care for half of them. Without telling Adam, she discarded 20 of the children, and then she lied to her husband that her brood was only the remaining 20. But Adam had his suspicions, so he said a prayer to God, asking that his lost children be allowed to live beneath the earth and only venture out at night when the rest of mankind slept. These 20 subterranean dwellers became the jinn. The Malay of Southeast Asia believed that the jinn arose from three leaves of the mangrove tree. Green jinn emerged from a leaf that flew into the sky, the black jinn emerged from a leaf that fell at a dark forest gate, and white jinn from a leaf that ended up in the ocean. And yet one more origin story can be found in a sprawling 10th century book called The Meadows of Gold and Mines of Gems, written by a scholar named Al-Masudi. The book itself is a tome on the very history of time and the world and all of creation in it, so, naturally, it couldn't leave out the jinn. 
According to Almasuthi, God created the first jinn, a male, from burning wind. And from that jinn, God created a mate, not unlike the Adam and Eve story. These two came together and their union resulted in 30 eggs. Each of these 30 eggs upon hatching released a different kind of jinn. One of the eggs cracked open and out emerged the mother of all the kotoibs, the jinn that come in the form of cat. From another egg emerged the iblises, the demon jinn, which make their home within the walls. From another egg were hatched the maradas, which inhabit islands. Another egg produced the ghoul. And yes, if that sounds like the kind of ghoul you're familiar with, that's because it's one and the same thing. And yet from another egg emerged the silas, which hide in the mountains. And yet others, the wahawis, which inhabit the air in the form of winged serpents. And so on and so forth, each of the 30 eggs cracked open, revealing a variant species of jinn. Now, some of these descriptions may sound familiar to you, and they should. Jinn in the form of cats? Well, that's not so far removed from shape-shifting witch companions, the feline familiar. Winged serpent jinns that fly through the air? Hello, dragons. And the earliest known story about leprechauns involves a captured group of them granting three wishes to their captor to gain their release. Granting wishes and playing tricks on humans seems to be a crossover favorite for both the jinn and these Celtic creatures. Some even argue that fairies, those tiny, adorable, sparkly, flitting creatures we've come to associate with glitter and enchantment, actually have a dark history that ties neatly with jinn lore. Or at least there are some interesting parallels there worth considering. For example, according to the lore, both the jinn and fairies predate human creation. They're both creatures that took up their abode in the earth, but eventually withdrew into a world where they could be invisible. They both love to play tricks on human beings, they live extraordinarily long lives, and most interestingly, they might have a very similar origin story. According to the Celtic lore, fairies are none other than fallen angels, having followed Lucifer out of heaven when he rebelled against God. According to a 19th century account by folklorist Alexander Carmichael, local Irish storytellers relayed this tale of the fallen fairies, quote, doomed to live under the ground and only permitted to emerge when and where the king permits. These cursed fairies weren't allowed out of their hiding places on certain days, but on some nights they would light their lamps and sing. Not of the seed of Adam are we, and Abraham is not our father, but of the seed of the proud angel, driven forth from heaven. Likewise, in the Muslim tradition, the rebellious jinn also were cast out of heaven, following their master Lucifer. Given some of the overlap in the lore, maybe fairies and leprechauns are manifestations of jinn. If you were to ask some folks, actually, they'd say all supernatural beings and phenomena are some form of jinn or another, whether those beings are playful and harmless, or they're destructive and evil. UFO sightings, jinn. Human possessions, jinn. Crop circles, jinn. Magician David Blaine, oh, definitely a jinn. And believe it or not, according to a 2006 report in The Economist, factions in Somalia and Afghanistan have accused their enemies of being backed not only by the CIA, but by malevolent jinn. One theory in Afghanistan holds that the Mujahideen scared the jinn out into the world, causing disharmony. It is the jinn, they say, who whisper into the ears of suicide bombers. So while it seems that there are some people who see jinn everywhere and in everything, 
scholars and enthusiasts have categorized the jinn into four broad categories. And each of these four kinds will, once again, sound pretty familiar to you. First, there are the jinn who live among humans, the ones who inhabit our homes right alongside with us, which are called the Omar. After all, we have all heard about house hauntings, countless books and films have been made about supernatural dwellers, often evil and violent, that really want their space to themselves. These beings do everything in their power to get rid of whatever hapless family unwittingly moved into their territory. But unlike what Hollywood would have you believe, not all of our co-inhabitants are violent psychopaths. Most of the time, they just want to live right alongside with you in their own parallel plane, without even letting you know that they're there. Other times, however, they may like to mess with you, or just let you know that they're in charge. In 2009, a Saudi family was so fed up with being harassed by a jinn in their house, they finally took the jinn to court. You heard me right, they sued the unseen entity in an actual court of law. The lawsuit filed by the family, which was joined by every member of the family, alleged that the jinn had for the previous two years stolen their cell phones, left them threatening voicemails, maybe from those very same cell phones, pelted them with rocks every time they left the house at night, and frightened the children. They heard voices, first a woman's voice, then a man's, telling them to get out of the house and whispering threats. Now, the court took the matter seriously because it wasn't like it was just one person making the allegations. It was the entire family. So, they investigated. But, of course, they found it wasn't easy to substantiate the charges. Many different media outlets reported the case, which seems to suggest it was unusual enough to make the news, although it would be great fun to exclusively have a gin docket. Anyway... There isn't any information out there about the court's ultimate verdict, and the lawyer in me can't help but wonder what damages the family was asking for. Did they want their cell phones back? An apology for the voicemails? An exorcism? Well, what we do know is the family eventually just moved out. So, I guess you could say the defendant won. Then there are the kind of jinn that terrify every living parent on Earth. If you've ever raised some little ones, at some point you may have seen your child communicating with something or someone invisible to you, but not invisible to your child. We've all seen that spooky black and white child monitor video footage where some toddler in a crib is deep in conversation, babbling, laughing, pointing, responding to what looks like nothing there at all. It could be that the child is in fact having a chat with an arwa the kind of jinn that just love babies. You could call them baby whisperers. These jinn attach themselves to small children. Many times, it's not out of any malice, but because they're kind of baby crazy. They love the coos and gurgles and innocent wonder as much as we do. Maybe they even love that fresh baby powder mixed with warm milk smell. Some of them can't stand it if someone is mean to a child. They are there to play with and protect their tiny friends. That doesn't mean there aren't others that love to torment children, but most just take advantage of the fact that the children are more receptive to them. Unlike adults, the veil between the seen and the unseen is thinner for little ones. And it's believed that both animals and children are able to see jinn and communicate with them easily. A 2006 article titled Of Children and Jinn 
in the Journal of Cultural Anthropology chronicled just such a situation. The author, a researcher staying at the home of her professor, was shocked to learn that his family had for years lived with multiple jinn in their home. The jinn had apparently been gifted to them by an acquaintance, if you could call that a gift, an acquaintance who inherited them from his own father. But the acquaintance apparently had too many jinn to know what to do with, so he sent a group of his jinn companions to the home of his friend, the professor, gifting him one jinn for every male member of the family. But the jinn didn't communicate with the family through the male members that they had been assigned to. Instead, their main conduit was the eight-year-old daughter of the family, Mariam. Mariam was the only member of the family who could see the jinn. See them, actually interspersed with her family, hanging out and about with them. She could read what the jinn desired in the palms of her hands. And when family members had questions or needed advice from the jinn, little Mariam was the one to pass on the message. Once, a jinn told Mariam he really wanted to experience what human food tasted like. She told her father, the professor, and with his permission, she told the jinn to go ahead and enter her father's body to find out. And so, apparently, that's exactly what the jinn did. The professor was suddenly seized with an uncontrollable appetite, and he ate and ate and ate until the household ran out of food. The jinn that Mariam and her family felt closest to was named Suleiman. He was thousands of years old, older even than Christianity. And Mariam described him as tall, with a long white beard, and he wore clean, spotless white clothing. While he was usually serious, he was very gentle, especially with Mariam. The child was never frightened by him. For years, the family itself never interacted with the jinn except through Mariam. And in effect, this female child commanded a great deal of power over them in a time and place where female children might not otherwise. Eventually, Mariam lost her ability as childhood gave away to puberty. The family tried to get her younger sister, Fatima, to take her place, but Fatima was not as willing a medium as Mariam. She was scared of the jinn and also upset that they did not seem to be doing her bidding. Eventually, the family just kind of gave the jinn back to their acquaintance who had gifted it to them in the first place. They're lucky that the parting was amicable because it isn't always like that. Which brings us to the third broad category of jinn, which all kind of fall within a spectrum of, well, evil. The least powerful of all the evil jinn are the shayateen. And if you think that word sounds familiar, it should, because it's Arabic for a bunch of Satans. The shayateen keep busy inspiring mankind to do evil deeds through whispers and black thoughts. Then there are the marid, which are powerful jinn that can be summoned by black magic, who only do the opposite of what they're commanded, and who are related to water elements, living around lakes, waterfalls, rivers, oceans. Think mermaids, but really terrifying ones. Finally, there are the ifrit, known to be the largest, fastest, strongest, coming in all shapes and sizes and abilities, and the most evil of them all. You could even call them demons, and some say that the angry, vengeful spirits of those who died violent, unnatural deaths could also be ifrit. You might be surprised to know that the happy-dancing genie in a bottle that comes from the Arabian tale in 1001 Nights is in fact an ifrit, 
and Ifrit have made their way into other modern Western pop culture. An Ifrit character makes an appearance in both the television series True Blood and the blockbuster Neil Gaiman novel American Gods. And if you're a gamer, you might know that you can summon an Ifrit in the Final Fantasy video game. These blips of publicity notwithstanding, undeniably the most infamous account of the Ifrit is thousands of years old. And it's the story of the jinn that were believed to be enslaved by the great biblical king Solomon. That's right, one of the many divine abilities granted to the legendary King Solomon was the power to control the jinn. According to the Muslim tradition, it was through this power that Solomon was able to become one of the most powerful rulers the world has ever seen. King Solomon commanded legions of jinn to do his bidding, sending jinn armies to fight off his enemies and using jinn labor to build never-before-seen architectural marvels, like the first temple of Jerusalem. In fact, the city of Jerusalem itself, along with its ancient walls, is said to be built by Solomon's jinn slaves. There are rabbinical interpretations that say that the massive stones that built the temple cried out with actual voices and moved themselves to the construction site. Other stories say that the female jinn mined the great stones from quarries and carried them to the sacred site, accounting for the appearance of the stones moving by themselves. There are Hebrew rabbinical commentaries about Ecclesiastes 2.8 in which Solomon himself describes how he collected, quote, a shidda veshadot, a phrase meaning demons. Another ancient text further describes Solomon's enslavement of supernatural beings to carry out his will. That text is called the Testament of Solomon, and it dates from around 200 AD. This magical text, which is believed to have its origins in the first century, is in fact ascribed to King Solomon himself. While it's not considered a biblical canon, it is supposedly a first-hand account of the building of the first temple. Though there is disagreement as to its authorship, which can, of course, certainly be expected of a 2,000-year-old document. Now, according to the story, the master workman at the temple's construction site had a young son, who King Solomon was quite fond of. The son, like his father, worked and earned wages, but over time, the child grew thinner and thinner, and weaker with every passing day. It turned out a vampiric jinn named Ornias had been creeping into the workers' camp every night, stealing the boy's food and wages, and sucking the child's life energy, his blood, in other words, right out of the boy's right thumb. When Solomon learned of this, he prayed and prayed that God would give him the power to deal with Ornias. One day that prayer was answered when, according to Solomon's testament, the archangel Michael brought him a powerful ring forged out of iron and copper, so bright and shiny that Solomon could hardly look at it. The ring was engraved with two interlocking triangles, creating a hexagram. And within the hexagram was the tetragrammaton, the four letters symbolizing the most powerful name of God. The engraving on this ring has come to be known as the famed Seal of Solomon. The ring allowed Solomon to control all the jinn in this world and in every dimension. And the Testament of Solomon actually lists many of the jinn, at least the notable ones, that King Solomon summoned to appear before him to account for their deeds and to be sentenced accordingly. One of the jinn that Solomon commanded before him was Onoskelis, whose form was half woman and half mule. 
She told Solomon she was born from the voice of the echo of a black heaven emitted in matter. She dwelled in caves and jungles, and she seduced and strangled men. For her sins, Solomon sentenced Anoskelis to make hemp ropes for the construction of the temple, day and night. Another jinn that the ring dragged before Solomon was Ashmedai, one of the most powerful jinn. The story of Ashmedai's humiliation in front of Solomon doesn't only appear in the Testament of Solomon. It also appears in the Babylonian Talmud, a Hebrew text of collected documents between the 3rd and 6th centuries, a couple of hundred years after the Testament. And this Talmud tells a similar tale of King Solomon enslaving Ashmedai to build the temple. But Ashmedai wasn't any old demon. He was called the King of Demons. And Renaissance Christians called Ashmedai the King of Nine Hells, the demon prince of the deadly sin of lust. So clearly he had a long-standing and terrifying reputation. Ashmedai told King Solomon that he was the offspring of an angel and a human woman. For those of you familiar with the Old Testament, you might recall the story in the Book of Enoch about the Watchers, or the Sons of God, as they were called. Angels who disobeyed God's command, descended to earth to take earthly wives, and then bore beastly offspring called the Nephilim. Maybe that's what Ashmedai was claiming to be, one of the Nephilim. Nonetheless, Ashmedai's specialties included driving people to insanity, causing them to commit murder, interfering in marriages, and causing enmity between people. For these sins, Solomon sentenced the demon king to be weakened by iron, a metal that jinn are terrified of because it causes them pain and harm, and to make clay for the temple by trampling the ground. Now, you may be thinking, well, was it jinn or demons that King Solomon controlled? But the answer is both. Because as we said before, the universe of jinn includes the most evil of them, better known as demons. And yes, even Satan himself. But more on Satan later in the series, because believe me, you can't talk about jinn without talking about Satan. Back to Solomon, though. The enslavement of scores of jinn apparently rubbed many of them the wrong way. Ashwamedai raised an immortal battle cry against all mankind, declaring, And your tyranny will be short over us, and then we will again have free range over mankind. So as that, they will regard us as if we were gods, not knowing men that they are, the names of the angels set over us. And so to this day, there remains a legion of jinn, who are still peeved off at the indignities that they suffered under Solomon. Because remember, they lived for thousands of years. You see, Solomon didn't just enslave scores of them. Others, he imprisoned in brass and iron vessels, sealed with a magical spell. Yet others were locked up for eternity in rings made of precious gems, guarded by powerful talisman. For all we know, these many jinn, the hundreds of thousands or millions of them, are still locked up to this day. And back then, it became pretty clear to the jinn that no good could come from men having control of them. We don't know about the jinn imprisoned in vessels and rings, but the jinn enslaved by King Solomon were finally released when he, according to the testament, failed a test of faith by God. The ring that he used to control his jinn slaves and jinn army was in fact stolen by a jinn, who morphed himself into a Solomon lookalike and ruled for 40 days, pretending to be the king. 
In some traditions, it's said that King Solomon regained the ring and continued to lord over his hordes of jinn. But one day, as he stood leaning on his staff, watching the jinn slaves work and build his many projects in the Holy Land, he quietly died. But no one realized it. Because he was standing, holding on to the staff, he didn't topple over, even though he was very much dead. His body continued to stay upright, leaning on the staff, and no one realized he died. So the jinn continued to slave away, thinking that their master was still watching them. Finally, though, the staff was eaten through by worms, and the mighty King Solomon finally fell to the earth, alerting his slaves that the king was no more, and that their years of humiliation and forced labor had ended. A jinn traveled far and wide to the outer reaches of Solomon's kingdom to tell the others, shake the dust of your labor and go your way. And so they did, gaining their freedom at last. No one since King Solomon has ever been able to have command over the entire creation of jinn, likely because the ring that held that power disappeared. Legend has it that Solomon's ring, sword, and crown are buried on an island in a lake in Siwa, Egypt. No one, however, has ever found these treasures, and another legend says that they will not re-emerge until the end times, when the great apocalyptic beast appears, who will be wielding both Solomon's staff and his seal. But until then, there are still ways for human beings to get jinn to do their bidding, because there are always jinn who are willing to, well, negotiate their powers with us mere mortals. So yes, there are ways, if you want a jinn at your beck and call, to get one. But more on that in a later episode. For now, we move on to the final category of jinn, the ones that we are born and die with, the Kareen, our constant companions. According to the tradition, each one of us is born with a Kareen, which literally means constant companion, a jinn assigned to us at birth that lives with us throughout our lives and dies with us when we die. At least, that's the most common understanding of what the Kareen are. This jinn, like others, has commonalities with much more ancient beings. The Babylonians believed in a demon called the Sidu, which, while having evil properties, was also a guardian spirit attached to human beings, much like the Assyrian deity Lamassu, also a protective creature. Then there is the Christian guardian angel, a more familiar being to our understanding. The point of departure is this, though. Not all scholars believe the Kareen are necessarily protective. In fact, many believe the Kareen are evil jinn, meant to confuse and lead man astray at every turn, from the moment of his birth until his death. Kind of like a little devil on your shoulder, whispering you into things you know you shouldn't be doing. And others believe that the Kareen is a person's double, or even a familiar. Now, you might be most familiar with the familiar as an animal companion to say a witch, but historically the understanding of a familiar was much more broad. Philosopher Pierre Riffard defined a familiar as possibly being a doppelganger, or a totem spirit, or perhaps even a personal demon. In some traditions, it's said that because the jinn are created with free will, the Kareen, too, chose what they want to do of their own free accord, but they can be brought under the control of their human through various spiritual rituals and black magic. One way, they say, to weaken the grip your Kareen has over you is basically to just be a good person. 
It's said that the more evil a person engages in, the more powerful his Kareen becomes, pushing him or her to worse and worse acts. After all, the beast you feed is the one that will win. What makes a Kareen particularly insidious to human beings, maybe more so than any other jinn, is the fact that they've been with you since the day you were born. So they know everything about you. They've witnessed everything you've ever done or said. They know your deepest desires, your weaknesses, your secrets. Which means if they wanted, they could manipulate you like a puppet master. So it seems like your best bet is to, well, just keep your Kareen on your good side. Because for better or worse, this is one companion you'll never be able to shake. Thanks for joining us this week. Next week, we'll be back to take you on another step into the world of the hidden jinn. Until then, remember, we are not alone. If you have a jinn story, drop us a line at thehiddenjinn at gmail.com. And remember, that's jinn with a D, D-J-I-N-N. And tell us all about it, along with your contact information. You never know, you might hear back from me. And if you're a gin enthusiast, you can get more gin content on our Patreon page, where I'll be dropping full-length interviews with gin experts and scholars, as well as conversations with people who have had first-hand gin experiences. So check it out at patreon.com slash hidden gin. Finally, don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us both on Twitter and Facebook with the handle at The Hidden Gin. The Hidden Gin is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The podcast is written and hosted by Rabia Chaudhry and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. Music for the show was provided by Smithsonian Folkways Recordings. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.